Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 12.11 First Avenue North on the third floor. Uh, Let's talk about sort of the tradition that every culture has of telling stories around a campfire. I guarantee you, you get any group of people around a campfire some stories are going to start coming out. In fact, at my last church, um, they used to have a men's retreat. And every time that they would advertise this men's retreat, they would say, you know, come hear a speaker talk about the Bible. Come be a part of our clay pigeon tournament. Come tell lies around the campfire. Right? Because what do all guys do when we get around a campfire and start telling stories? We, We embellish. Right? We... We make the fish a little bit bigger, right? We know how this works. And all of a sudden, that time that we you know, just missed that deer that was 8 feet tall and 500 pounds, you know, every time it, it, his antlers get a little bit bigger, right? He grows about 6 inches every time the story is told. The, the, the fish that just got away on our fishing trip last time was the biggest fish in the history of humanity, right? We, have, we understand what these stories are about. And let's be honest, guys, girls, whoever we are, we love to sort of hear those fantastic tales. They are a lot of fun. They, they make us happy when we hear these stories, right? Even if we know that there's a, you know, yeah, so maybe you didn't catch a 35-pound bass, but, but the story in getting there was a lot of fun. The ride was great, right? We love the way that those stories, the way that they have that anticipation, the way that something bad always happens. Somebody always has a fish hook in their ear before you can catch the giant fish, right? That's, that's how those good stories unfold. What the book of Judges is, in a lot of ways, is true campfire stories. They're these stories that the people of Israel would tell around the campfire. Except instead of like, you know, my fishing stories about the fish that I've never caught because I'm quite frankly not a fisherman. But instead of being sort of the fishing lies that we tell, these were true stories. These are stories that were true, but that still had that campfire feel that still had those sort of fantastic elements, those sort of plot turns and twists that make them great campfire stories. And this week, the story that we have is absolutely a picture of this. This is not a story that you're going to find in your children's Bible. This is a story that um, is very, uh, at times, graphic. Um, But it's a story that the people of Israel would have loved to have told. And I think when we read it in just a second you'll hear why. You'll kind of laugh. The story should make you laugh a little bit. And what's happening is the people of Israel throughout the book of Judges are going through this cycle where the people who they were supposed to kick out, the Canaanites, are still living in the land. And the people of Israel start worshiping the Canaanite gods, start looking just like the Canaanite people. And so God says, okay, fine, you want to live like the Canaanites? You get to live like the Canaanites because now some Canaanite ruler is going to be your ruler. The guy that the God who you're trying to serve right now said is his king, that's who's going to be your king. And he's going to tax you and he's going to make you slaves and he's going to treat you poorly. And for some amount of time, the people of Israel deal with this. And then at some point they say, wait a minute. 
Remember that God that brought us out of the land of Egypt? Maybe we should turn back to him. And time and time again, the people of Israel turn back to God. And every time, God will eventually send a deliverer. He'll send a judge, but don't think of him like the guys with the black robes and the gavels. Think of them as a leader. He'll send a leader to bring the people out of their mess. But something's going to happen every time in this story. Within a few years, maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years, and in this case of our story this week, 80 years, the people of Israel go right back to what they're doing. So here's what I want to do. I want to read this fantastic campfire story that's true from the Bible. So I'd ask that you stand. We're going to read the story of Ehud from Judges chapter 3. It says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of Palms, that's Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Jerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it to, on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he, that's the king, commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached out his left hand, and he took the sword from his right thigh, and he thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chambers were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the cool closet, uh, the closet of the cool chamber. And so they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened it, and there lay their Lord, dead on the floor. And Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Serah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and they did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. City Church, this story is the Word of God, written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. C- 
Can you see how wild and crazy this story is for a Bible story? Right? Not too many times do you open the Bible and read the phrase, and then the dung came out. Right? As stories go, this is kind of a pretty spectacular one. So what I wanted to do today as, as we sort of reflect on this is first just walk through the sort of what happened in this story. You have the people of Israel who it says did evil in the sight of the Lord. And any time we read that phrase in the book of Judges, that's the writer kind of having shorthand, uh, kind of summarizing things by saying the people of Israel started to worship the gods of the people around them. This is the evil that they did. They started to commit idolatry. And so what does God do? God raises up a king. In this case, his name is Eglon. And Eglon becomes the ruler over Israel. He fights and takes over their land. Now, in this case, there's a couple of things uh, going on here. First of all, Eglon's name uh, means uh, bull calf, like a a small male bull, Uh, which means that when you combine that with the fact that he was, in the words of the Bible, a very fat man, He is this little fatted calf, which is uh, somewhat close to what we would sort of use the term fat cat, right? When you sort of think of the, the sort of mob boss in the back, overweight, sort of running things because he doesn't have to do, you know, he never has to lift his fingers. He never has to run after anybody. He's in charge and nobody else can do anything. That picture, right, is the picture that you should kind of have of Eglon. And not only that, but there's some irony going on here. Some dramatic irony. First of all, when the people of Israel began to take over the land, the first city they came to was Jericho, the city of Palms. There's some irony that where does Eglon set up home base? In the city of Palms. When he comes and takes over the chunk of Israel that he takes over, he sets up his kingdom seat in the very place where Israel had started to conquer the land. And so he's there, and he is the fat cat sitting there getting fatter and fatter off of Israel's riches. They had to bring him tribute every year. They had to bring him sacrifices. What they had to bring him was all of the food that they were producing. So Israel, as slaves, is getting skinnier and skinnier and skinnier because he is eating all of their crops. The idea is that the sort of, of the story is that Eglon is literally eating Israel out of house and home. He's like the, the college student who comes home on break and all of a sudden the parents wonder why their bill goes up so much for all of their food because their college student is eating everything. This is Eglon, right? He is the hungry, hungry caterpillar. He is eating Israel, literally. And then you get the people of Israel who after two decades of this finally cry out to God. They finally cry out and say, God, will you deliver us? And God says, yes. Yes, I will. But here's the thing. I'm going to send you Ehud. And did you notice what it says, like that weird, random detail that the Bible gives us about Ehud? He's, he's lefty. He's a southpaw, right? What, what is with that, right? And not only that, but he's, an, he's a lefty 
from the tribe of Benjamin. And the name Benjamin literally means son of the right hand. So Benjaminites, literally their tribe name means the right-handed people. And here comes Ehud, who is left-handed. <laughs> Left-handedness is, in the Bible and in almost all other cultures, sort of seen as a bad thing. I mean, there are people in this room who grew up in a generation that if you, started, if you picked up your pencil with your left hand, you would get smacked on the knuckles with the ruler and told to put it in the other hand. It was, it's not, you know, left-handedness is not seen as a good thing unless you're a pitcher. And the same was true back then. Because a lot of times, left-handedness was a way of saying that somebody was sketchy, that they were shady, right? If you were left-handed, you're probably not the best person. No good people are left-handed. And God says, you want someone to deliver you? I've got it. You're going to get a left-handed deliverer. Somebody who's either sketchy or it may have been that he was handicapped. It may have been that he couldn't use his right hand, so he had to use his left hand. So we're kind of unsure from the passage whether he was a lefty and he was sketchy or whether he was handicapped and broken. But either way, this is not the ideal leader. When you think of a leader, you think of the tall, strong guy who's got nothing wrong with him. And God says, no, no, no. The kind of person that's going to deliver you is either sketchy or handicapped. That's who you get as your leader, Israel. And then the story sort of slows down a little bit, and it sort of has that, you know how action movies slow down when you get to the good part? Right? That's what happens, because all of a sudden, it's sort of that montage of Ehud making this sword, and we're told exactly how long this sword is, right? It's, it's about the length from his, from his elbow to his knuckles, and he's, he's making this sword, and he sharpens it on both sides, and he straps it to his right thigh. Sorry, I don't know my left from my right very well. So this, all this left-handed, right-handed business is really tough for me. But he straps it to his thigh. And he goes in and he presents the tribute. He gives them the food that the people of Israel should have sent. And then he sends his people away. And he's walking away. And then he turns around and he goes back to the king. He says, oh king, I was just at the idols. I was just at the place where you worship your gods. And I've got a message for you from God. Right? And we sort of know what's coming. And we know that he's sort of using double speak, right? Ehud stands up and thinks, oh, you have a secret message. Uh, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to send everybody else because I want to hear the secret message from God. And Ehud reaches down with his left hand that nobody was expecting. He reaches down with his left hand, pulls out a sword and kills him and says, here's your message from God. It's not a word, it's a sword. And then we sort of have this borderline gruesome description of how fat Eglon is. That the sword goes in and it disappears up to the hilt and and Ehud can't even get his sword back. His brand new sword that he just made, he can't use. And not only that, but he stabs him in such a way that that Ehud loses his bowels. There in the middle of his sort of throne room. So Ehud escapes, and Eglon is left there dying. Well, the the people that Eglon ruled, his servants, they sort of wonder what's going on. And they think, well, the door's locked, and we can smell 
we can smell something in there. He must have locked the door so he could go to the bathroom. Right? Can you see why telling this story around a campfire would be a lot of fun? Right? There's this sort of body. 14-year-old guy nature to this story, right? It's kind of funny. And it says that they waited outside of there until they got embarrassed, until they were embarrassed at how long he was taking. And they finally got the key and opened it up, and there they found him dead. Well, what we know is that he's been dead for a while. And that their waiting to find this out has allowed Ehud to escape. And so Ehud escapes... He goes and he rallies the troops. They come down and they defeat the now leaderless Moab. And for 80 years, things go well for Israel. Okay, on the one hand, this is, this is a story that's a lot of fun. right? It's a lot of fun to tell this story. It's a lot of fun to read this story. But as we listen to it, there's a big question kind of hanging over it, isn't there? Why is this story in the Bible? If we believe that the Bible is God's word, and as we say every week, written years ago and intended for us this morning, why this sort of body campfire story? I think one of the reasons that God left this story in the Bible for us is to remind us of the fact that we need saving and that we can be used by God. We need saving and we can be used by God because our trouble, my trouble, your trouble is that oftentimes I don't think that I need saving or I don't think that I can be used by God. Because of the things that I've done, because of the things that I, that I haven't done, because of the things that have been done to me, I don't think that I can be used by God. And oftentimes I don't think that I need saving. Think about this. One of the parts of the story that's most fascinating to me is that the people of Israel had just been rescued a few years before by another judge. And yet, when Eglon comes and takes them over, when he starts enslaving them, it takes them 18 years to cry out to God. A lot can happen in 18 years. 18 years, by and large, is a, is a long time. And it took the people of Israel 18 years to cry out. Why? Why so long? Why such a big gap? Because at the end of the day, the people of Israel didn't think they needed saving. They're like a dog sitting in a room that's on fire drinking a cup of coffee saying, this is fine. This is fine. So we're slaves. Who cares? So... So we don't have any crops. So we're barely getting by. This is fine. Nothing's wrong. So the king is getting fat off of all of the hard work that we do. No big deal. How many times in your life and mine are we just okay with our sin? Kind of like it. Feels good. Makes us happy. Keeps life going. Sometimes it makes life easier. How many times do we look at our lives and go, I don't really need saving because things are going pretty well right now? Probably more often than we want to admit. 
not only do we sort of say that we don't need saving because we don't think we need it, but we also oftentimes don't like the means God used to save us. Right? Remember when you were a little kid, the, um, the bubblegum medicine? Right? The, the medicine that you had to take as a kid. Now, I know this is polarizing, but I have very fond memories of that because that's like really tasty. Right? When you, yeah, I know some of you out there are shaking your heads going, absolutely not. Right? You know, w- once we got to become adults, we have to take like the boring, bland pills. Right? But when we were kids, candy flavored medicine, the best. Right? But for some of you, you look at that and you go, uh-uh. no, I don't want that. Right? Well, I, the same is true, right? Sometimes we think that the cure is worse than the problem. I would rather be sick for longer than take bubblegum medicine. Not me, but maybe you. I'd love to take bubblegum medicine. We don't like the way that God decides to deliver us. We don't like the fact that God sends somebody who's either sketchy or handicapped. What's interesting is in this story, as we look at it as Christians, one of the things we see is even the hero is broken. Even the hero in this story is a flawed hero. Whether that's because he's sketchy or whether that's because he's handicapped, one way or the other, even the best character in this story is broken. And that's really a picture of us. Not one of us is above the need for saving. No matter what our spiritual resume looks like, no matter what we can sort of go, well, God, look at all of the things that I've done. Haven't I done all of this in your name? And Jesus looks at our resume and he says, you still need me. You still need grace. And the trouble is is that we forget that. We begin to think that we've got it together. We begin to think that my life is okay. And, you know, Jesus is a nice add-on. He's a nice bonus. It's like Sirius XM in my car. If I've got it, great. If I don't, that's okay. I've got AM and FM, and my car plays MP3s. I'm okay. We think that Jesus is an add-on. It's a nice little bonus feature to our lives. And Jesus says, no. No, you need me every hour. You need me every day. You are not above saving. As you read this, uh, if you're not a Christian, uh, one of the things that this challenges us with is the fact that we are broken, that we are in need of saving. See, this is one of the most difficult things about Christianity. Is Christianity says, you cannot do this. You cannot save yourself on your own. It was interesting. Um, I go to a meeting called One Million Cups. It's an entrepreneur's meeting, and I go to sort of hang out with entrepreneurs and figure out what they're doing and see how it applies to the church. Well, there's a guy there. His name's George, and George is, um, George is agnostic, and he's a big Star Trek fan, big Tesla fan. He's kind of a, he's an interesting guy. Um, and George and I were talking after uh, One Million Cups this week, and you know, George started talking about how science has proven that there's no such thing as choice and we're all just conditioned and all this stuff. And, you know, George is talking George's stuff. And as I'm sort of talking and speaking from a Christian's perspective, he says, well, yeah, see, that's the rub, is that I don't believe in sin. 
And this is not the first time George and I have had this conversation. And what I told George was, at the end of the day, if you don't believe that there is a thing called sin, then Jesus has nothing for you. If you don't believe in sin, Jesus has nothing for you. Because what Jesus says is, you are a sinner in need of saving. I can save you. But if you say, my life is fine. I don't do anything wrong. Everything is fine. Then Jesus doesn't have anything for you. And we forget that. Many times, those of us who are Christians live our lives as if we believe the same thing as George. And maybe you're here this morning and you kind of agree with George. Maybe you kind of say, you know what, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in that boat. I don't really believe that there is sin. What I challenge George with, and the same challenge I'd give to you is this. Then how do you account for all of the stuff that you would call evil? Because all of us have stuff that we go, that stuff is not okay. How do you make that list? How do you put that stuff in the not okay list, this stuff in the okay list? All of us have to have a reason for that. We as Christians believe that that reason, the way that we make those moral decisions, is based on the Bible. What about you? So on the one hand, we think that we don't need saving, but on the other hand, we think that we can't be used. When we look at the story of Ehud, what we see is a judge who is either broken or sketchy. We see someone who is either unable to function he is he's broken by things that have happened to him whether it's a birth defect whether it's an injury Ehud is quite possibly broken by the things that have happened to him or he's sketchy because of his choices what's interesting about that is that most of the time you and I think that we cannot be a part of what God is doing because of those two things. We either are sort of driven by the shame of what's happened to us, the way that our life has been formed, the way that our life has gone. We are filled with shame. And we say, I I can't be used by God. I'm too broken. Or on the other hand, we're filled with guilt because of the choices that we've made. We look at our lives and, and say, I've done too much. I've gone too far. There has been too much bad in my past for God to really use me. You see, this is sort of the opposite. While some of us think that we don't need saving, others of us think that we're beyond it. That things have been too bad. That my my life has been too dark. And what this passage does is it says, no, God is happy to use people who are broken. God will always use people who have made bad choices. You want to know why? Because that's all he's got. Because that's all of us. If God wanted to use perfect people to build his church, to build his kingdom, to share his message, it wouldn't get shared because he doesn't have any of those around. Because every single one of us is broken by the things that have happened to us. Every single one of us has made choices 
that have, that have altered the course of our life, that have left us with things in our heart that we can't shake. Every single one of us is in that boat. And the good news is, God loves to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. He loves to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And so this passage is an invitation. Because if we look at it, we can see in Ehud ourselves. People in need of rescue. And yet at the same time, people who are broken and messed up. And this passage invites us to be honest about both of those things. Invites us to be honest about the ways that we are in need of rescue. As we sort of sing that, that song, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I'm a child of God. It's not just fear that enslaves us. It's our finances. We're not just enslaved to fear, we're also enslaved, many of us, to greed. We're enslaved to power and prestige, to status, to being approved by the social circle that we want to be approved by. There are so many other things that you can sort of fill in the blank with that all of us look at. And God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be brave and be honest because not one of you is beyond saving. No matter how bad the Moabites have gotten, no matter how much the thing that drives you has taken from you, you are not beyond saving. What's interesting is that Ehud is broken, but at the same time, he's a beautiful picture of Jesus for us. Because whether he was handicapped or sketchy, whether he was left-handed by necessity or whether he was left-handed because of his character, Ehud is the unexpected deliverer of the people of Israel. And the same thing is true about Jesus. Nobody expected a carpenter's kid from the sticks north of the city, from the country, from the Alabama of Israel. Nobody expected that guy to be the savior of the world. In fact, the Bible says that he had nothing in his physical appearance that made people go, ooh, I want to follow that guy. In his physical appearance, he was supremely average. And yet God used Jesus, his own son, to save us. And it's interesting, I, I mentioned that, that Ehud, Ehud's name meaned, meant calf. And that, in a way, this story is a picture of sacrifice. What does Ehud do? He goes and he kills the fatted calf so that the people of Israel can be released from their sin. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the sacrificial animal who was killed so that you and I might be free from our slavery to fear, to greed, to acceptance, to whatever it is that grips our heart, whatever it is that pulls at us. Jesus was the one who was slain for us and for our salvation. And so this passage is a challenge. What's it going to take for you to admit your brokenness? It's going to take you 18 years. 
what's it going to take from you? It's going to leave you hungry? It's going to leave you craving other people's acceptance? Wanting just a little bit more money? Craving for one relationship to go the way that you want? What's it going to take for you to admit that you're broken and need a deliverer? On the other hand, this passage is an invitation. City Church, if you are willing to confess your sins, if you go, yes, I am broken. Yes, this stuff still haunts me. Yes, it is still something that I struggle with. Can God use me? He says, yes, come. Come and see. I am good. I was sacrificed to take away all your sins. And I welcomely say, come and be a part of what I am doing. Because he loves to use broken people to do his will.